welcome to the Gym Owners Fitness Business Podcast. Our podcast is proudly sponsored by FitRec Fitness Registration for Fitness Professionals. Today we welcome onto our power panel a fantastic group of fitness business industry experts. First, I'd like to introduce you all to Dee McKee from Soulology, Ken Baldwin from the Healthy Aging Summit, Matthew Tobe, fitness business expert on culture and community, Vanessa Cibriano, fitness, wellness, business development, obviously at her website, Dennis Marthias from Remote Training Systems, Scott Hunt from Fitness Enhancement, and of course, myself. Two of our guests today couldn't make it, but I'll be popping uh, a podcast with those guys across as a bonus on the end of this podcast. Now, let's get stuck straight into our podcast today. Now, first of all, thank you to all of you for joining me. Um, this is going to be an absolutely fantastic 30, 40 minutes or so of conversation. And how our panel podcast came together today was all about when I posted on social media a few weeks ago on a couple of different topics. And our industry got very, very active vocally. Now, one of the questions that I asked was, does our industry, the fitness business industry, need a union or, or something similar? The second was, it was about COVID-19 and how our industry had been ignored by government. And then the third one, which we're all very passionate about, is healthcare. And it is the biggest opportunity in the industry. Now, before we go any further, I would just ask each of our panelists just to introduce themselves very briefly over, say, 30 seconds or so. So, Dee, if you could kick it off, that would be fantastic. Fine. I run a chain of health clubs here down in Melbourne. Um, I obviously have a, a large sort of fitness industry background. I've been through a large amount of changes, seeing lots of things happen in, obviously, the last 30 years. Um, and obviously, um, I've branched out into more mindset and mindset coaching along with that, um, just feeling that there's also a need for that um, in the health side of things to get people's mindset rights as well as their physical bodies right. Fantastic. Ken. Yeah, hi. I run Perform Better Australia, which is a products and education training company with my lovely wife, Karen, and also the Healthy Aging Institute. And earlier on this year, we put together the first uh, Healthy Aging Summit for those over the age of 45, the active aging demographic, uh, because that's a big passion of ours uh, moving forward and been in the industry for over 30 years as well as, as Dee has. So seen a lot of change and uh, very active in that area. Thank you. Matthew. All right. Uh, I've been in this industry for about 25 years now and gone through everything from fitness consultant sales up to ownership. And the last few years I've been working as a consultant in the industry, working on culture and leadership, which is such a key aspect of you know making sure our business is solid and we've changed the mindset of what fitness was to what fitness really is fantastic and vanessa hello everyone i've been in the fitness industry for 18 years and i specialize in sales marketing and branding i've worked with mega brands and startups and i'm currently the host of a podcast as well called the business side of fitness fantastic dennis you're up next Hi, uh, yeah, Dennis Mathias. I've been in the uh, fitness industry 35 years or so. I lost count somewhere. 
Um, started as a trainer, literally just worked my way up the steps. So I was general managing and running very large clubs. The last nine years, I was hired by actually a medium-sized health system, became a director within the health system, and my responsibility was to manage their 174,000-square-foot health club. And along with that, coordinate clinical integration between that entire health system, and health, health system and the health club, which led me to the development of a clinically, uh, of an exercise program arm in arm with doctors. And because we worked together, we were actually very honest with each other. And for the first time ever in my career, I was actually able to talk dirt over the lunch table with physicians. And that's how I developed the remote training system. It's uh, program kind of left the bricks and mortar behind um, and got into uh, a remote uh, training uh, program that is both clinical in nature and commercial in nature. Sounds fantastic. And Scott Hunt. Hi, guys. I own Fitness Enhancement Personal Training. I started that about 20 years ago. Um, we've got studios and mobile personal trainers servicing about 2,000 suburbs around Australia. Um, we're also NDIS registered, so we do a lot of disability work. And most of our clients, NDIS or not, are people who go, I, I feel a little bit too old or injured or large or just don't feel comfortable going to a gym and they want to have one of our personal trainers in private. Fantastic. Okay, guys, now let's get going. Now, the biggest opportunity in the fitness industry is healthcare. Now, we all agree that we need to align healthcare and fitness side by side as one, equal in profession and not excluded. Now, we as an industry have an opportunity to bring the consumer of the healthcare industry into our industry. Now, Scott, I would love to know your thoughts on this and your experience with NDIS. Yeah, so NDIS has been really great. For those who don't know it, it's essentially our disability funding for people to, to get things they need to live a full life. So it's not just fitness, it can be anything out there. So that's been really great for us and other NDIS providers because it's it's lots of great clients and for the clients it means they can get personal training funded, which is obviously really, really, really important. It, it's something I think most people would agree is a pretty essential service for someone to be able to exercise when they can't exercise without a qualified professional there. So we see great success stories with that, and I guess that's where it's been so disappointing over the whole COVID thing, when that was then effectively called a non-essential service, and a lot of our clients couldn't train during it. So we've been, um, yeah, so part of the results we've got in our clients over the last couple of years with it, and then to have a lot of that come to a standstill because people with disability being told Essentially, your exercise isn't that essential. You can just go and do it in a park by yourself when all the gyms are closed. Was a bit hurtful to a lot of people. We feel. Um, what I struggle to understand through through COVID, and obviously we're we're still we're still going through this, and anyone else can jump in. Is see, Scott, in in my club, I have some EPs that rent some small space, and they were excluded from shutdown, and they were able to see their clients. But you weren't able to see your clients, yet they, they were the same. They were the same yes. people. And I don't understand that. Can you just explain in a little bit more detail how something like that can happen? I'd love to understand that one too, thanks. <laughs> so that was a frustration. So a lot of NDIS clients, I mean, we're, we're personal trainers. We're very good trainers, of course, but we're personal trainers, we're not EPs. 
But a lot of our NBS clients, it's someone with autism who just wants to ride a bike or play basketball or it's someone with Down syndrome who just wants to get berries and in bowling. It, it's not something that NBS has designed just for, but everyone would agree it's absolutely essential that the person has that, that outlet for the fitness and the confidence and the health. And every NBS participant has a plan, whether it be for for fitness or any other things. And a lot of the goals we have people for, the most common one would be confidence followed by independence. Weight loss is not one of the most common goals. There's a plan that's been signed off on as being essentially essential by their doctor. And then we've been hired through the government funding to actually help them achieve that goal. And we all know how great fitness is in achieving independence and confidence. And, and we do a great job with that. So, yeah, we have that same frustration with a lot of people or the parents of people with a disability who rely on that service and that support of personal training and simply could not get it. We could take them to a park and do it, but that wasn't always appropriate or safe for the person. Or, in the case of some people, they just went, well, we now just have to pay literally four times the price for an exercise physiologist to play basketball with our son because they could do that. And when I say basketball, I mean in a, in a gym setting, a, a work around the basketball, I guess. So, yeah, somehow it was dangerous if you're a PT and safe if you're an exercise physiologist. I don't understand that. Yeah, I, I don't understand it either, Scott. Has anybody else got any thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, no. This is Dennis. Can I jump in on that? Absolutely, Dennis. Um, and we could do a whole podcast on this. I'm going to give you, I don't, I can't compare it to Australia, but I'm going to compare it to the United States because we went through the same exact thing. And I'm going to, get, I'm going to tell you from my perspective, I'm going to share you an analogy um, of why. We got to look in the mirror as an industry and we just simply are not considered <clears throat> to be medically related still 35 years later of, of my career. We've been chasing it for years. I'll give you an analogy of a business that was considered essential, which is actually even less uh, clinically legitimate, but they position themselves such. In, in America, we're going through the whole medical marijuana phase. Um, and I don't know if you understand in America, but the uh, but marijuana is still an illegal drug, and, and but there's dispensaries that are allowed to open and dispense it. Now, there has yet to be a human... Uh, test done with it because it's still an illegal drug. Um, I know the business well, and it doesn't matter why. Um, I they, but they were considered essential because they opened their business. They quote unquote get their leads from physicians, although anybody can now get their card and walk into the dispensary. <clears throat> There's nothing. It's not like walking into a pharmacy. <clears throat> But because they were perceived as medical, the government, which doesn't really understand the business other than they're getting the extra fees from it opening, considered them essential and left them open. Um, we are much more uh, clinically based. We have much more actual studies, human studies and all that. But we have never positioned ourselves as clinically partnered. So if you ask any, in America, <clears throat> any political person that has to make that decision, um, they, they think of 
uh, the 1980s. They just think of their YMCA when they were a kid. They don't see things like all of us may be doing or, they, or my program where it really was essential for my people that were going to be, had to get on the treadmill because we're trying to get their A1Cs down or whatever the case may be. But our industry has got to form that that bond and to do that um, we have to do a better job of creating a medically based program within our clubs i, I see people wanting to totally change our business model uh, that, that's going to delay this whole process we need to create a program much like uh, walmart's and cbs's are doing over here renting 3300 square feet to a physician creating their own little medical space and, and partnerships with uh, specialty providers. We need to create a truly clinical business separate of the way the club operates because we can't change our model we'll go out of business chasing the 82%. Um, and then that clinical thing, we've got to spread the word that we're a, a healthcare provider within the club and have people come just as they would come to a doctor. That's why we weren't considered essential. Because we all operate independently. I, I even see it in America now where we're chasing this. I know you're going to talk about chasing the, um, um, the, the medical opportunity, the clinical opportunity now. I'm very much deep into that space. And I probably see five different versions of it being done now. Um, and once again, we'll do five different versions and we won't have that one version that the world will go. And doctors will go, oh, yeah, I can send my... Um, um, my A1, yeah, my type two person over down to the local health club medical clinic. If we had that in each club, if we had a medical type clinic in each club that was um, clinically standardized, and the physicians everywhere knew it, uh, and the government kind of knew it, and we really need, and this is a whole other podcast, insurance involved. We would have been considered essential. But All we right, don't Dennis. So have what, we'll, what we'll do? Okay, let's just take a step back from that then. And and as I said, everyone can jump in and answer this, but I will direct it towards Ken D and Vanessa. Um, obviously, it's it's evident here in Australia, and of course in the states. We can't dismiss that this is not an issue in the states. The we as an industry, we we desperately seek recognition as professionals. Um, and we demand standards and we want to be seen as healthcare professionals. And look, I, I put this up on social media, you know, we don't want to be seen as a bunch of sweaty, half-naked, waxed individuals taking pictures in the mirror. You know, we're business owners, we're accountable to for tax, we're accountable to our staff. You know, we have a lot of responsibility. But how do we, how do we change the perception that is perceived by politicians and by the media and even by our own community that that's what we are because we are professionals. So I would love to hear, you know, Ken, D and Vanessa, your thoughts on that. I think a lot of it has to do with how we're seen with our qualifications. We're our own worst enemy to a degree because um, our personal training qualifications are like a lot of people compare it to getting it out of a cereal box. It's short, it's do this and do that over a very small period of time. Um, it's It doesn't seem to be industry-based, even though I've been on committees and there have been committees that have reviewed um, our standards of practice and what, what is within our scope of practice and what should be uh, in our certification and what shouldn't and, and what is a diploma and so on and so forth. 
that makes it really difficult from that perspective. Um, and until we get something where we say that people see that we are we have a baseline qualification, not just to be a trainer, but something that is from an academic base, um, will we get any? And will the medical profession look at us? The other problem that we have is that our industry is still aesthetically based. Um, whether it's group fitness, whether it's strength and conditioning, we know that the small percentage of people that use gyms or look at gyms um, look at how they look. Um, there's lots of uh, big people out there or fit people out there, but they're not healthy. And um, so that's that's a challenge that we're facing, and especially as we age as well, because we know that the ageing population don't feel comfortable in that type of setting. So... Um, it's, it's a bit of a dilemma from both perspectives, both from a training perspective and from an image perspective because we are portrayed as, you know, the bodybuilder and, and the aerobics and as Dennis said earlier in the YMCA in the early days, people are still seeing us as that and until that mental picture changes, um, we've got an uphill battle to have a reputation that um, physicians will be wanting to talk to us about. Dee, you work in the clubs every day. What are your thoughts on this? Um, I feel that we need to look at a lot of the people that I suppose come into our club and we've done one closure and are going through a second closure right now um, and the impact of being open two and a half weeks to then have to close again um, had a great impact on the members' mental health. So for us to change, it's not just about physical health and the and the, the physical well-being and the physical changes of a person. We need to be seen as someone that's also going to help the mental health of the person because a lot of people these days join the gyms, not just for the physical side but the mental side. You know, their, their mental health is, is being affected with everything that's going on at the moment and the gym closures isn't helping that because they, they're not having that outlet anymore. They don't have anywhere to go to. So we need to be seen as a professional in sort of, I suppose, looking at the mental health side of things of the person and their and their mindsets plus their physical health. And, and you know, and, and a bit with what Ken was saying, it comes down to, to the education and the courses that we run. For us, I think, you know, we need to sort of change the way people view us by the qualifications that our team members have. Um, Vanessa, you're, a, you're an expert in startups. So if I was to say to you, Vanessa, tomorrow, I want you to start the industry all over again, what would you do? Oh, thank you so much for asking this, Mel. I'm going to actually say something that might hit a nerve with some people. I think personal trainers to the general public are really, and the government are really categorized in the same arena as bartenders, honestly. I think that, you know, we need some type of standardization. I echo what Ken was saying as a baseline education. Right now, there are people uh, conducting personal training sessions that have CSCS certifications, check certifications, and then there's also people in that same arena that have gone online over the course of a weekend and obtain a certification. Another thing that's played into this is social media. There are people that are 
you know, that do not have certifications that are writing workout programs that are giving advice that are that are demonstrating exercises on social media. And the general public is under the perception that if you have a certain amount of followers, that you must be qualified to, you know, to prescribe workouts, whereas there are really qualified, amazing, talented personal trainers that are able to rehabilitate people's injuries that are able to get them out of chronic pain. And it's just not all the same, but to the general public, it is. So I would really start with some type of standardization. So what, okay. So I totally agree um, with you, you know, Vanessa, the perception of us is totally the opposite to what we are. And you are so right. It's about the likes. It's about the followers. You know, it's about wearing the coolest active wear and everybody follows these people. But what can we do to re-educate? I mean, do I have to go out there on social media and go, you know, with the latest Instagram um, profile that's got a million followers and go, this person is falsifying who they are? Is that what we have to do? I think we have to move towards legitimizing and professionalizing the industry. We have to, you know, the people that are kind of the real McCoy, that have the real background, that have the experience, they need to stand up as leaders in this industry and differentiate themselves. And I think that's what we're trying to do here on this podcast. And I've seen it on social media, on other on other platforms as well. And we have to stand up and say, hey, this is not right. There are, you know, when you're looking for a personal trainer, when you have issues that you need to alleviate pain, you need to look for a qualified professional. What makes a qualified professional? Well, it's certifications, it's years of experience, it's, you know, it's a variety of things. And we need to all stand together as a united front. So, Scott, you're working in the industry every day, and so are you, Matthew. What do you feel that we need to do? Because, I mean, I've got a very strong opinion of the Australian fitness industry here. We're self-regulated. We can do what we want. We don't have to answer to anybody. I say this every single day of the week. And we do have um, associations out there, and each of them has a different business model. I, I feel at the moment that oh, we're just doing such a poor, poor job um, and this is why in COVID we became a non-essential item. Imagine if we had been seen as fitness business professionals, how many people we could have helped and how many businesses yeah. could have been saved. You know that and I know that. So what do you think, honestly, we have to do? Because let's face it, in the States, in the UK and here as well, everybody is a little bit worried about upsetting those on top of the ladder and I personally couldn't give a shit about any of them to be quite honest with all of you because they're doing a, a terrible job because if they were doing a great job none of us would have had to have shut our doors so Scott and uh, Matthew tell me what do you think sure well I, I um, really think we should put ourselves in a different sector of the industry there's there's really two bits of the industry there's a lot of crossover of course but to me there's really two bits there's there's health industry which we're all in and, and so many others are in and then there's the six-pack and selfie industry which which is a totally different industry it's not to do with health you're doing things first and foremost to look awesome with your shirt off um, and that's fine as a place for that but we're all in the health industry so I think we need to make it very clear that we're a different industry and try to separate us from that it's going to be tough when those lines ways blur but that's where it is because at the end of the day the what what looks good in the media and six packs and all that stuff is going to get more exposure there's more clickbait there for those things 
and the media continues to just pick up on the fact that you know, gym junkies getting their fix in the gym and all these things that reinforce that bad image. And that's that's mainstream media doing that. I didn't see any articles talking about people who need gyms for essential health reasons are excited to get back into gym. Every article talked about gym junkies are excited or gym junkies mm-hmm. are, yeah. are getting their fix. So we need to make a separation there and not have a scene in the same industry because we we really are a different industry. Just because we might all have some dumbbells doesn't mean we're in the same industry. Yeah, I, I'm going to say it's it's funny. So I'm in Canada, and uh, we actually, in, in where I live, uh, just got, we're the last province uh, still with fitness closed, and everybody has been open for about a month now. And there was this huge, I, I saw the provincial board to reopen Ontario um, with fitness, and, you know, we had all these companies and clubs come together and, and CEOs of competing businesses all working together. We gave the province, the provincial government, a great um, proposal as to what we thought would be best uh, to open up fitness. And when they announced yesterday, so here we were, we've not been able to open up for four months. And finally, we have permission to open up. And I went to their website, the government website, to look at what they want us to do what they think will be proper in opening, and we're not even listed. There's no guidelines for us. So we were just closed because you're fitness. So the mindset and the thought process of what fitness is, I think a lot of ways, like we've all said, is that it's aesthetic, is that it's a visual medium, and that's all it is. And the fact there's no standardization as to instructors and trainers. You know, when you go to a gym, and, and, and I've done this where I've hired people saying, like, hey, you know, I think you'd be great for this job that we're working right now. Um, come in, let's talk it over, bring your credentials, and they've got a following, and they're amazing, and they're busy, and they're, they're excellent motivators, and all they've got is a Mad Dog spin certification. Well, they're not a trainer. They're, they're, they're not educated in anything other than spins. So there's nothing to, you know, show how to correct posture or somebody has an injury. Oh, well, just try this instead. Like it, it, it's such, there's no standard like we've been saying. And I think that the government and everybody else is just picturing us doing that. Uh, the jingles you hear for commercials to get members in the gym and to, to sell memberships, it's that seller's mentality. We just need to sell memberships, get bodies in the door and not see you because we know 80% of you aren't going to come back but you're to pay every month. That's what we need as opposed to we need all of you here and we're going to call you after a week if we haven't seen you. And we need to take care of you. We need to be there for you because you joined the gym for a reason. And most of those people join the gym because they need it uh, for their health, not because mm-hmm. they need it for their Instagram. So whose responsibility is it to change the culture that we have created I personally think um, that it's all of ours. I think it's the people yeah. who are on this podcast, the people who have been doing this long enough. Because it's so easy to say, I want to be a trainer, I want to do what you do, go get a weekend course from the, literally the back of a comic book, the way we're, you know, for it's perceived, and be a trainer. And I know that in the US and Canada, the average career of a fitness professional is under six months. That's career. Start to finish, they're in the fitness industry for six months. That's unheard of in any other industry. 
And it's because people want to get in. They think it's going to be easy. They're going to be paid billions of dollars. And that's a whole other conversation. Um, and they give it up. So we're not being taken seriously. So I think we need to speak up. So I've just noticed um, that Brendan has jumped online. I'll just get them to unmute himself. All right. So, Brendan, if you can hear me, if you can unmute yourself. Oh, yeah. Hey. How are you going, Brendan? Yeah, good, thanks. Thank you for joining us. Brendan, your timing is perfect, actually, being able to jump in the podcast. Um, so, Brendan Farm Hill is a previous fitness business industry consultant, and I've worked with Brendan on a number of occasions, and he's got great talent, great personality, and is a is a gift to the industry, but he no longer works in the fitness industry. And Brendan, if you can, can you just share um, a little bit of your story? Yeah, no worries. Um, where, where would you like me to start? Wherever uh, you feel comfortable. So basically, I've, I've spent about 12 years in the fitness industry. Um, and so in that time, I did a whole variety of things, um, including being a national trainer for MOSA, um, so travelling around training group fitness instructors, um, doing demos and all that kind of thing, worked in the gyms, managed, gym, managed different gyms and that sort of stuff as well. Uh, it happened twice now. Uh, the first little hiatus that I had from the fitness industry um, was due to my mental health. Um, so I had been diagnosed with depression and anxiety. Um, and the first time that I was diagnosed with it, I basically got out of the industry um, for a temporary period, which was about three, four months. And that this industry that helped me then get through that um, with the support of the people I was working at um, and all of the people that were there. Uh, they managed to help me get back in and, and get back into teaching and, and that sort of thing. Um, I then went on to do a number of years after that and ended up working at a, um, a gym, a little boutique studio. Uh, and at that point, uh, it was probably the point where my anxiety got to the worst. Um, I literally would have panic attacks the minute that I tried to go in and actually do a workout. Um, the, the, yeah, I, I could work in the gym and I could manage it and I could coach classes, but I physically couldn't actually manage to get myself in to do a workout. Um, that's how, how bad my anxiety got. Um, from there, uh, there was a number of different issues, but basically um, there was no support given to me, um, or that's how it felt. Uh, and then in, in the very end, um, basically I was offered a redundancy from the position that I was in. And to me, it was more of a case of, we don't know how to deal with this. Easiest to just sort of get rid of you and not worry about, not have to worry about it. Um, I didn't really feel like there was, uh, anywhere to turn to, to get support for that. Um, or advice on what I should do or how I should go about it or what should be done. Um, it was just kind of taking a guess at it. And at that point in time when mental state is not necessarily the best, um, and, and as I said, I was at, at probably my lowest point 
um, with my mental health. Uh, it was basically just an option of there's an out, um, take it because what else have you got kind of thing. Brendan, um, I mean, you are gifted at what you do. I, I love your work. There, there's absolutely no doubt about that. But if you could, if you could implement one thing into the fitness industry so that another person doesn't have to go through what you went through, what would that be? Um, it would just be some kind of support network. Um, that was the biggest thing for me. Is I, I literally had no, had no idea who I could turn to to be able to get support or anything like that. I, I actually tried, I got in contact with Beyond Blue um, and they were fantastic, sent out a whole heap of resources and that sort of thing. But once I received them in the gym, gave them out to people so that I could try and educate people on what I was going through. Not a single staff member read any of it. Um, not even the owners read any of it. Um, being able to, to seek advice on how to best approach that and to know that there's someone there to be able to have somebody come into the workplace and literally sort of sit down with myself and the owners to start off with and talk about what it meant to, to have um, the, the level of anxiety that I did, what was causing it and different ways of being able to um, approach overcoming it and, and being able to, to sort of continue working um, would have been fantastic. But um, like I said, there was, I, I didn't really feel like there was anyone that I, or didn't know of anyone that I could contact to be able to get that kind of support. So I'll just get the, um, all of our panel to just unmute themselves because I did mute some of you guys um, whilst Brendan was speaking. So Scott and Matthew and Dee and Vanessa and Dennis, if you can unmute yourself, that would be great. So Scott, just waiting on you. Um, I would love to hear everybody else's feedback on this. It's quite relevant that, you know, our industry does need um, some type of standardisation and obviously, if we were regulated, Brendan's story wouldn't be so so common. And we we are hearing similar stories like Brendan's. What can we do as an industry to to create standards so that we do have some sort of accountability, not just to the consumer to ensure that they're getting good practice when they come to a club but also to ensure the safety of our, our fitness professionals who work with us side by side every day. What can we do to create some type of standard moving forward? Anybody can answer that. Mel, I think we can do two things. I think firstly, um, you're doing a great thing and congratulations because you've addressed the issue of mental health on a previous podcast. Um, and that's something that um, we take for granted um, I remember a conversation I had about five years ago at, at, at an international conference I was presenting at, and the, the topic was that in five years' time, there will be no such thing as a personal trainer because our role should be evolving to that of a coach because we need to look at what our clients are going through and meet them at their level first, you know, from a, from a not from a physiological perspective, from a mental perspective, before we even touch the physical. And that's starting to change. Um, I think we have to um, start talking the talk of leaving our ego at the door because there are still way too many people in our industry that 
are in it for themselves. Uh, now, we know our industry doesn't pay well, um, but we shouldn't be in it for the pay. We should be in it for the difference that we can make in people's lives. And to do that, we need to collaborate. And um, kudos to you for doing this group and also the mental health side of things. Um, the other thing that comes with that is we all need a mentor, whether it's a business mentor, a person mentor, um, a, a gym buddy, so to speak, um, to help each other out, somebody that we can turn to. So things that happen to Brendan won't keep happening. And the other last and final thing is people don't know what education we can offer. Um, we need to be more proactive in what we can offer, not just from a physical perspective. And COVID was a really good example of that. People were going out and doing workout, but the people that stood out were people that were giving away free content and saying, we're going to help you here, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, you know, how are you feeling, let's catch up. And um, from an uh, NDIS perspective and from an, uh, an ageing perspective, that's gold because that created that connection, that created that. So that's, that's my two cents worth of um, Dee, your thoughts on this? Um, we definitely need to have something standardised. Like mental health for team members um, is just as important as the mental health for members, but there is no platform for team members to go to at all, um, especially through this closure. Um, there was not a lot of, obviously, support for us as an industry or as individuals that... It needs to be addressed. It needs to. It needs to be changed, um, and the changes need to come from everyone that's literally here in this group, or um, that can have an impact. Because you know, it, it does need to change. And you know, we call ourselves fitness professionals, but you know, we need to have something that goes along with that. Um, Vanessa, I'm going to come back to you because you're you're the the startup expert. So I'm going to throw throw this at you. Um, I'm fed up with the industry here in Australia and I know that the struggles are the same in the US and various other countries and I want to do something about it. And we've had great conversation here on what we should be doing, you know, um, you know, education, talking about mental health and, and all of these things. We know all this stuff but we keep talking about it and talking about it. So I come to you and I say, I want to create a new business model for the Australian fitness industry and I want the industry to become regulated. What's your best advice to me and to everybody else on this panel? How can I make it happen and how can we make it happen in the States for you guys? Well, I think step one is to unite. We need more people. So on this panel, we have about seven people. We need more people. We need to, it's our obligation and our duty to collaborate, to work together, to not see each other as competitors, look at each other as collaborators and begin the education process. So Brendan, thank you so much for sharing your story. I unfortunately think your story is not unique. There's a dirty little secret in fitness, and it's been uh, portrayed here in the media, in the New York Times, in Forbes articles, that the fitness business, the people that work in the fitness business are actually not treated the way that you would think. Everybody thinks that uh, the fitness industry is all sexy and hot and we're just, 
you know, giving out hot workouts, but on the back end side, the pay, like we touched on earlier, is a lot of times underwhelming. The hours are incredibly long. The mental health of our staff and our team members is sacrificed. So we need to educate owners and employees, staff members on how we can improve all of those things that it's not okay to, to, you know, pay a a group fitness instructor that's bringing you 50 people in a class, it's not okay to pay them $20. It's not okay to, to make all this profit off of these people and pay them nothing and use and abuse them. So we need to come together to collaborate, to create some type of standardization. And that doesn't necessarily, that's not going to start with regulation, but it's going to move in that direction. Dennis, you've been in the industry here um, the longest, and you'll also have to unmute yourself if you can, please. Um, Dennis, you've been in the industry the longest, and you've been listening to us discuss um, everything over the last 10 to 15 minutes. What are your thoughts on on moving forward? How do you see us being perceived as, as fitness business professionals? You just need to unmute, Dennis. I think Dennis is having a few problems with unmuting. That's all right. I'll let you play around with that, Dennis, and I'll come back to you, okay? I can. Oh, there you go. You're on. Please give me your opinion. Oh, wait. Now, can you hear me? I sure can. Okay. All right. Um, I'll try and be brief. You actually have about 10 podcasts within this entire podcast <laughs> that, that, we could easily, um, that we could easily go through. Um, so, so my, um, here, here's the honest truth. Okay. We have a, um, an industry model that, um, just isn't going to change. Okay. This model has been around since I was around and somebody said it earlier. We have two separate types of fitness people. Um, and when, I don't know, Mel, when you said the people high above, uh, I don't shoot me. If you're talking about URSA, um, I'm actually very good friends with those folks and those guys, not to take sides, but those guys' hands are tied in a way that they work for the owners and the owners work for themselves. Yeah, it wasn't okay. URSA. We'll just clear that up. It wasn't URSA. <laughs> okay, good. I, just, I, I promised those guys I would stick up for them. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're all right. <laughs> Um, but, but they really are in kind of the same position, like the commissioner of a professional sports group is in Pennsylvania, in the States. He works for the owners and you're not going to get the baseball owners to change rules because you got 30 billionaires that are going to decide to run their baseball team the way they are. So I have one, I have a couple core philosophies and my first one is simplify. And we're talking about a lot of things. We're talking about a major change to a, um, a business model that was built for the 18%. Let's not fool ourselves. This model was built for the 18%. Um, You know, we can talk about the standardization of trainers and I don't want to go off on that. Um, I was asked one time, actually by her, said, do we need to increase the 18% ceiling? And I said, well, sure, because our inventory is increased, but we're not going to do it with the current model. So, since we can't change the model, what we really need to do to get to this end plan is come up with the program we're all talking about, 
rather than change the club, let's insert it into the industry and start from scratch and have somebody lead that way. Say, okay, here's the model that you can put in your club that we have standard standards for the coaches. Um, we have standards for the way we operate. And I'm basing this on my experience in the health system. So I was working hand in hand with doctors. Um, I came up with my program, which is actually really simple, which is what the doctors liked. And I ended up, I, my office was literally on the fitness floor of 174,000 square feet with spandex and body, you know, and everything we're talking, people are afraid of around me. And I would have people in wheelchairs coming in. I would have people with all kinds of conditions coming in that we would never think would go into a facility. But they were referred by a physician into me in a consultation in my office, which was looking right out at the fitness floor. And I had a, a consultation that was kind of standardized to everything everybody's talking about. The, um, uh, you know, everything, the, the mental condition of the individual, their lifestyle, all those things. Um, and they would end up on the floor and they would end up on the floor in a very comfortable way. Um, a lot of them became members that would have never walked into a facility before, but I'm, I'm going to tell you that the secret to getting to that promised land is we've got to create a better rapport and a better direction with our physicians because those people it doesn't matter what we do to our health club. Those people aren't coming in. It's not a part of their lifestyle. They're not thinking about it. But their physicians will send them to us. And if we if we have a program inside there, much like, again, I go back to the wall, to the CVS issue where they have a 3,300-square-foot area set off just for their physicians. Um, but they kept their CVS model all the same outside of that 3,300. We're not going to change um, certainly in the U.S., uh, because of capitalism, we're not going to change the way health clubs run, but we can certainly add something. And <clears throat> we can find that leader that develops that because we're starting to see now what happened with the health club business. I was there when it was just ironing garages, and then Augie put the life cycles in, and also again health clubs, and then everybody went their own way. 30,000 square feet, 100,000 square feet, you know, now we have studios, all that. Well, the same thing's starting to happen with our clinical. Everybody's creating their own version of a clinical integration model because they believe there's money to be made. Once again, we won't be perceived as being standardized even in our clinical integration uh, way of doing things. So if we want to get where we want to go quicker, we need that leader that somebody said, come up with this model. Um create one that the that is that, that physicians will take simplify it we can create a career for the people that come into this model much like the people that have built nutritional companies in America use health coaches is the only way uh, they can get reimbursed and that's a career for people we can create a career within that model of our own and let you know Mel do her club the way she's doing her club but have the physicians and create that awareness that within this club is a a community center health area where even if you don't go to your physician but you want to get better you know that there's this place to go that's comfortable to go into your club and get that word out and then that's where we standardize we standardize the people that provide that we're gonna have a real hard time convincing clubs that i have somebody that maybe somebody said it before has a you know a mad dog spin thing but they might be doing 45 hours of personal training a week 
you're going to have a hard time convincing an owner to that you can't have those type of people anymore. But if in my clinical model, I standardize the way the person, the, the, the position, the education they need, the way they handle the individual, um, we can, that's how we can get to that next step without having to convince, you know, 5,000, 10,000 clubs that we, we're going to throw three quarters of your trainers out because there's only this one standard way of doing things. All right. So Scott and Matthew, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I'm going to say this, um, you know, have, that model is great and, you know, trying to work within what is there and, and kind of go in, you know, take a piece out of the box and try and get a new mindset. But I'm, I'm looking at it from a different perspective. I'm looking at this through what's happened over these last few months with COVID. Um, the model is changing. You have companies going bankrupt. You've got gyms that are closing. It's almost like a mass culling of, um, of the industry, that, of, that, of things that aren't necessary. And then you've also got, and I've been in part of a panel for a bunch of other uh, webinars and, and websites and summits recently where business owners and business owners are sitting there saying, my problem now is I'm starting to open up again and my, my people who used to open up the gym and teach at 530 don't want to do it anymore because I'm not paying them enough. And they've realized they can do things online and they've set themselves up as an industry leader online uh, charging and they've done this and done that. So all of a sudden, these last four months have opened up people's eyes, especially on the instructor side who, who do have education. They're sitting there saying, you know what, I'm tired of, you know, saying to people, do as I say, not as I do. You know, we talked about the mental health aspect of it. The fact that we're up at 4, 4.30 in the morning and going to bed at 10, 10.30, 11 o'clock at night, we're not sleeping properly. We eat horribly. Um, you know, we're, we're stressed out like no other. We can't afford the services that we offer. Uh, this is a big problem. And I think that, you know, the model is breaking. I think with lots of businesses going under um, and then the ones that are trying to reopen don't have the staff to do so. And I think it's it's starting. And I think the other part is we don't need just one standard certification or one standard education. We just need to say the following are okay. And we need to be on top of it. We need to have people walk into studios. And whether it be another body like Ursa or Idea or a brand new one that comes about that goes into these businesses saying, let me see your staff certifications. The spin instructor who's training 40 hours a week is not certified. And assign fines, and there needs to be a lot more because I can't do certain. You know, a physiotherapist can't start doing dental work. Yes. Right. It's you know they'd be fine. They'd be shut down. So we need to have that. I think that's one of the biggest things to really shock the system right now. We have an opportunity right now. Scott, your thoughts on this for back home here? Yeah. So look, I think they're all really good points, and the the ultimate dream world that you know hopefully we'll get to in our lifetime. That's absolutely what we'd all we'd all love to see happen. But looking at more the next you know year, five years type type thing, it, it's going to be tough to get big change. I think the one upside of COVID is in many industries it, it's a big reset button that lets good players come out strong and make the most opportunities. 
and the one to crash hot, it just puts long out of business. I, I know I've had within 20 minutes of my studio here, we've had about seven bricks and mortar places go out of business already that I know of. Um, some were good places, most were not good places. Um, so I think that reset the industry can be really, really good. It's going to um, also mean there are good people out there. I think we're all picking on the scams out there, and I'm sure Seth so wants to do that. <laughs> there are also plenty of great people out there as well. Whenever I go to any extra sort of educational things, there's always a huge amount of people there that are, that are excellent. The problem is, I don't come back into the rest of the industry or go to hire more trainers with ads on Seek, and I realise that's like, geez, maybe 1% of trainers out there are actually the ones that you're coming across who, who are actually credible. I mean, the people listening to this podcast are probably better than the average trainers out there. So the good trainers are out there, it's just that they're so saturated with so many of the bad ones, and the bad ones tend to make the most noise, because the bad ones are the ones that put 10 selfies a day out on Instagram as well. So I think it's about you know getting that focus on the, the good ones, us following our own path that's health-focused, not, not selfie-focused, yeah. and actually pushing forward towards that. I think that's probably going to speed up more rather than you know going, we wish the rest of the industry wasn't like this. Focus on what we're doing, and that, I think in the next one to five years, um, we'll probably get better results if we can all come to get all these great trainers that are already out there. We all come to get a lot more and and push that agenda and then of course make the public aware of it. You know, a lot of the public just simply isn't aware of how many good people are out there. Because people are great trainers, they're not great at marketing how great they are to help people in health and all the other longevity type things that we know we're great at. Um, Brendan, you're a consumer of the, the fitness industry now. How do you look at the fitness industry? What are your thoughts? Um uh, it's quite hard to look at it from a consumer perspective, I suppose, because uh, sort of half between consumer and half between still jumping up teaching every now and then. Yeah. But from what I've seen from um, and so I've spoken to a lot of the members that I used that used to be in the, the club that I was running, uh, and I've actually gone back and done a workout with them since then. Um, and listening to them talking, it was it was quite interesting to find out how much things had changed for them. Um, they were a lot less, um, or they were probably a lot more focused on the kind of people that they had coaching them. Um, they were also quite well aware of the, um, like one member literally said to me that they, they know that uh, another staff member was let go from there. Um, I'm not sure of the circumstances and stuff like that, but was let be, let go because he didn't fit the model that the that the gym was looking at. Um, so I think from a consumer's perspective, I think there is a lot of um, a lot of consumers out there that do see what a good trainer is and, and do understand what a good trainer is. Um, but I think they also get caught up in the the hype of the the selfie models as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I do I do agree with that, um, Brendan, because I see a lot of that in our community. I mean, you know, when we opened 17 years ago, there was 10 clubs in my community and now we're around 95, 96 clubs in our area and the large majority of them, their social media marketing is just what's happening in front of the mirror and, that, 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 yeah. and what hashtag is popular that week. 
Ken, have you got anything that you'd like to add? Um, no, that's pretty much it. I think um, we're doing a great job. We, we really do need to leave the ego at the door um, and stop thinking about ourselves and, and look at meeting our clients where our clients need to be met. And I think that's the big thing. Some of it, we're all very good trainers. We're all very good at what we do. But quite often we talk at or to the, the people that um, are our clients or, or our uh, people looking to do something with us rather than listening. I think the listening and the coaching side of thing needs to be something that really needs to be developed and that will help with the mental issue side of things too because we need to know before every session how our client's feeling, what's going on before they come in so that we can tailor that session specifically to them. So let me ask all of you, after having this discussion, has it changed your perception of anything in our industry that you could be doing better? I, I, you know, I'm the stuff that I put on my social media page for my club is always about the people that are with that are in my club. I never go for the fake posters and put them on social media. So my social media is about the real people, and and that's the message that I want to keep sending. What I have learned from listening to you guys today is. I probably also now need to start putting up, um, let's say, more images of my trainers and what their qualifications are because my trainers are all different sizes. So some of my trainers are quite big people. And educating perhaps my community, these are their qualifications, this is what they do. Um, they might not look like a size 8 or size 10, doesn't necessarily mean they don't have the skill to make you feel better. So I'm thinking about working on doing that a little bit more to educate my community on what I think is good practice and good standard. What about the rest of you? Um, I, the only question I'm going to ask, and I'll put, uh, we, we don't want to, again, another podcast. Here's my issue with standardizing. In my entire career, I've only ever hired anybody that had one of the big four. ACSM, NASM, CSCS, you know, ACE, those. So my trainers have always come in with the qualifications. Doesn't always make them great trainers, but they have the qualifications. You don't know until you get them. My question is, or actually my statement question is, that really didn't impact the 18% ceiling. And that's my, you know, it's great that we standardize, but I don't know that that brings... Unless we educate the public and, and we put a push out there that we're not spandex and, you know, girls for the girls anymore, and we educate the public on exercise, uh, not the same way the, hy the hyperbole of, uh, of the, uh, you know, whoever's on social media is, but let's simplify, educate, let's simplify it, um, but... My concern with standardization is that it isn't going to bring any more in. My bottom line is we need to get outside of the 18% into the 82%. And how do we use standardization if we're going to do that to get into the 82%? Uh, my, my thing with that, Dennis, is, and I'll cross to Vanessa next, is that the only way that we're going to get into that 80% um, that you're talking about is actually through what we're doing on our social media platforms. 
So that, that's, that's my purpose of saying what I was going to do. If I want to tap into that market that needs to come into my club, then I have to be that market on in my marketing. Vanessa, what were your thoughts on it? Well, I think it's, you know, it's, it's almost like an octopus strategy, right? It's not just one thing. It's a multitude of things like, like most things, right? Um, I think that providing value for our members and our staff is paramount. So providing value for our staff, like Matthew touched upon earlier, there's, you know, there's kind of the rise of the content creator. People are going direct to consumer now. Star trainers that are not satisfied with the way that they've been treated in the clubs are just going direct to the consumers and selling training online. Does that compare to the in-person experience? No, of course not. Brick and mortar, you can't compare online to in-person energy exchange. However, if we want to retain these top, this top tier talent, the people that are educated, that do provide that energy, that do provide that sense of community within our clubs, then we need to do a better job of retaining them. And how can we do that? We can do that by providing continuing education, real education. So this professionalism that we're all discussing, we have to be a part of the change. We have to provide that within our clubs for our trainers. Then we need to also provide that value for our members. You know, if a key differentiator is that we're providing continuing education and we're not just employing people, but we're also educating them and knowing that this is an ever evolving process, we need to also let our community and our members know, hey, this is what we're doing to make sure that you're getting the best value and service um, here from our staff. We're educating our staff. We need to educate you. Don't just go to anybody. Work with a qualified trainer. And this is why to prevent an injury and, and whatnot. So it's really just about education. It all starts with education. And I know, Mel, that you keep asking, what can we do and how can we do it? And I think it's all out of a, a shared frustration that we have, but it's just getting started, right? Everything starts everything great happens with just getting started and this podcast and and others are definitely starting to move in that direction but we need to just keep moving forward with education and not just hiring people and employing them but providing value thanks vanessa scott your thoughts yeah, totally agree. I think the education and awareness of the of the general public is is that really really important one. It's getting that getting all the people who need to work out but don't actually realise they need to work out. The person who's got a bad back and needs to lose weight. They don't need a chiropractor sometimes. Sometimes they just need to lose weight. Someone's got depression who needs to exercise. Getting them actually seeing that there are are the right people out there for that. I think regards to certification and so on. I think the awareness needs to be there for them as well because at the end of the day, right now, we've got a trainer who could have great qualifications or horrible qualifications, but if they can make their um, you know, their, their, their profile on their website look all right and the qualifications sound like it might be pretty good, even though it's practically a one-weekend course, people seem to think it's a good qualification. And the average consumer has no... No real idea. I, I know for us, and I think everyone's probably the same, we almost never have anyone ask what our qualifications are or what our experience is. Almost no one ever asks that question. They just they just sort of assume. So I think the awareness and exposure, it needs to get to a point where the consumer is saying to whatever gym or trainer, hey, 
the, are you registered or qualified with X, Y, Z? And if the person is, great, even more clients have If the person isn't, they're going, damn, just, not, just lost another client because I'm not up to scratch with this qualification. Whether I like it or not, if I want to get all these clients that keep on losing, I need to get qualified and registered with X, Y, Z or whatever, I'm going to keep on losing customers. I think if we can get that sort of awareness and exposure, that'll really, really help because those trainers will then step up and do that or they're perhaps already great and it's easy for them to do it or they'll go, it's just too hard, couldn't be bothered and I'll leave the industry and that's probably a good thing for everyone. True. And Matthew, you'll have to unmute Matthew. All right, there we go. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to agree with that. It's we need to really just get ourselves organized and uh, make sure that we're showing the members and showing that our community, which is what we're really building, is aware of what we've got, what we're there to offer, that it's not just about, you know, bigger biceps. It's about health and wellness and make sure that we're celebrating not just our trainers like you said you were going to do, uh, you know, their certification, but celebrating the uh, milestones of our members and make sure that it's not just about, you know, your personal best of hitting the heaviest weight stack you can do. Uh, a personal best is celebrating your membership that, you know, they came to the, they've come to the gym three times that week, and that's huge for them. Usually they come once every third week, right? So it's getting that mindset back that we're really there for them and we're there to help them change their lives. Dee, I'll just get you to unmute and if you could give me your thoughts, that would be fantastic. Yeah, um, we're sort of on the same lines as that. It's about getting trust back in the, in the community, um, both in the communities within the clubs and obviously the surrounding communities that, you know, health and fitness isn't just about the size of your biceps, but it's about, you know, changing yourself from the from the inside out um, and that we do care. Uh, I think too often the, the general public's perception of us is that, you know, we're just another number that comes through the door and, you know, there's no real care factor and, and we need to change that by educating the member but also educating the staff. Like there's so many different courses that are out there that, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're, I suppose, sometimes a dime a dozen and it's just getting the, the education of the staff right so that we then get the trust of the member um, and then the trust of the general public and, and showing that we actually do really care because that's why we join the industry. We all we all join the industry because we want to show people we care and to help them, but somewhere along the line, I think that's got frayed and lost a little bit. And Ken, you have to unmute as well if you could do that and pass your thoughts on. I um, agree with what everybody said. Education is the key, um, but what we deliver has to be as well. So in the club environment, a lot of our, our people coming in don't realise, you know, if, if we have uh, – we used to have a coffee club in, in our facility uh, quite a while ago where they come in once a, a month and it was just an education seminar, whether it's on, you know, healthy supermarket shopping, healthy movement, or we'd have a – a specialist podiatrist come in and talk or, or somebody like that. So uh, creating services within the club, as Dennis was saying, um, 
to give them an overview of, of our professionalism and what we care about and how we can help them in different ways and not just look and feel good. Fantastic. Now, Dennis, short and sweet, please, your thoughts. <laughs> short, Dennis, short. <laughs> it, didn't take, it didn't take me long to, to get my... my uh... Anyway, uh, just very yeah, very quickly, and I'm, I'm going to leave this thought because we've all put everything in there, and I'll leave this for another podcast. We're talking all about these things. We're forgetting there there has got to be there's a financial aspect that goes along with all this. Um, I built a business that worked in the healthcare. It passed all the doctors' things, um, <clears throat> check boxes. But when it comes down to it, people also have to be able. It has to be a financial structure that we can pay the trainers, that people will pay for, that they can afford it, even after we get them to like it. So all of these other things are right on, dead on things we got to do. But we also have to figure out, I, I came from a very poor club, believe it or not, with the health system owned it. Um, I couldn't afford to do any of these things. I couldn't afford CDs or anything. So we also, whoever's going to lead the charge, we also have to figure out how to pay for all of this too. True, very true. Um, I'll get all of you to unmute. And just before I go into the um, end of the podcast, first of all, I'd just like to say thank you, Brendan, for sharing your story um, this afternoon with us. Very much appreciated. And um, I'd love to catch up with you offline. Yep, absolutely. Sounds good. Does. All right, everybody, thank you for your time on our panel podcast today. I know that we could be discussing many, many subjects in the fitness business industry, but today's panel was a great start to ignite something new moving forward. So this afternoon, I spoke to Dee, Ken, Matthew, Brendan, Vanessa, Dennis, and Scott. I thank you all for your time. And what I'll be doing, I'll be dropping everybody's details into the bottom of our podcast. So if any of you would like to catch up with any of them offline, their details will be there. And uh, in closing of the podcast today, I'd like to thank our sponsors, FitRec Fitness Registration for Fitness Professionals. And again, I thank Dee, Ken, Matthew, Brendan, Vanessa, Dennis and Scott. Thank you to each and every one of you. Thanks for the opportunity, Mel. Thank, Thank you, Mel. Thanks, Mel. Yeah, thanks, Mel. Thank you. Mel. It was great.